one, uh, we are beginning um, with Colossians. That was pretty exciting there. Um, page 1251 in the Pew Bible. Uh, let's stand. I'm sorry. What are you telling me, brother? I'm on mute, huh? Sorry, brother. Um, page 1251 in the Pew Bible, if, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And Father, I pray that even as you sent your spirit to inspire uh, our brother, Paul, to write these words, that you would send forth the same spirit to anoint us and to give us understanding. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever wondered how the church got here? I'm not talking about our physical church, 1922, uh, and then before that it was in the backyard, uh, uh, 1888, but, but I'm talking about how our congregation got to Bruton. Why is First Pres here? Well, our, our story <coughs> begins, we might say it begins, it goes back to September 23rd, 1884. There was a, a cornfield next to the uh, Bank of Bruton, what is now the Bank of Bruton, and there was a tent set up on that date, September 23rd, 1884, and the first worship service of First Presbyterian Church occurred. Uh, and men, or and people, excuse me, like John Porter and Miss Phoebe Jane Porter, James Davidson, Mr. and Mrs. W.S. Neal, we've heard that name before, haven't we? And Mrs. Henry Harold became our charter members. Later, they would, at the end of that service, actually, they would uh, receive into membership a few others. But, but of course, that might have been the start of our congregation in name, but that's not the beginning of our story. Because those dear saints in the Lord, those who have gone before us, they heard the gospel from other people whose lives have been transformed by the Lord, and then they were faithful to tell those people. Perhaps they were their parents. Perhaps they were their neighbors. I don't know their stories. Those details are lost. But what is not lost is how the Lord blessed one generation by the, the generation before it being faithful to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. See, our, our story is a lot like that of the church in Colossae. The same thing happens here. There's a church that is founded, and it's because someone was faithful to, who was converted, who was faithful to then go and take the word of God and actually found three different churches in the area, a man named Epaphras. See, the Holy Spirit causes the good news of the gospel, and here in our text it's called the word of truth, comma, the gospel. The Holy Spirit uses that 
to convert us, to cause us to understand the grace of God, to, be, to bear fruit in our lives, and then go and tell other people about the Lord. Colossae shares a very similar story to our church in Bruton. Verses 1 and 2, we find Paul's usual form of greeting. You know, just like there are specific ways in which we begin formal letters, you know, if you're writing a business letter, you're going to have the recipient's address, you're going to have your address, you're going to have what it's about, and then, dear sir, madam, something like that. And then you'll end it sincerely or yours truly, um, or please don't call me, comma, and you'll write your name. Um, the, same true was, uh, the same was true back in Paul's day. And it looked very similar to this in the Greek world, but he, he Christianizes it. Right? He changes it, which was actually a really big deal. He changes it to be focused not on a blessing from him, but a blessing from God to the recipients. First, we find that the author of the letter was St. Paul. A converted persecutor, he became the most effective church planner and evangelist that has ever lived. And he introduces himself this way, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why is this worth mentioning? Well, think about it this way. If, if you receive a letter from the lawyer of your neighbor, though the lawyer is not your neighbor, he speaks for your neighbor. He has the full rights of your neighbor to communicate to you something authoritative. And that's what's going on here. Though Paul is not Jesus, he is the authoritative messenger of Jesus. And so when he writes, it is as if, and it is, by the way, Jesus the head of the church writing a letter to his people. Christ is the head of the church, and he has written a letter to that church in Colossae. Paul didn't seek this authority. He didn't aspire to it. He didn't finagle it out of someone. In fact, when in his commissioning service there on the road to Damascus, Jesus tells him, hey, you're, you're going to suffer a lot, right? But you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. It was the will of God. Not necessarily Paul's will, right? It was the will of God. He was being obedient to the apostolic call of God over his life. What this means then is that what we receive in Colossians is from the Lord. And it is authoritative, and it is important, and it's the very words of God. He's writing to a particular church. It's a church in Colossae. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, by the way. The Greek word adelphoi covers brothers and sisters, but for shorthand we're going to say brothers. He write, he's writing to the brothers in Christ in Colossae. And he gives them two locations. Two locations. The first location is the most important. We might call it the spiritual location. And that is in Christ. Where are they located? They are located spiritually in Christ. 164 times Paul is going to use some sort of derivation of this phrase, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Uh, he's going to use it in different ways, 164 times, in 13 letters. It's one of his favorite phrases. It refers to what is called our union with Christ. We are united to Christ spiritually. And Ephesians 2 tells us we are even now seated with him in the heavenly places in some sort of mysterious way. What he has done for us is now our now ours because the Holy Spirit unites us in a vital union that is our fellowship with God 
the Messiah, Jesus. This for the Christian, no matter what your age or location, time and history, your color, your language, whether you're rich or poor, is our spiritual location. If we had a spiritual passport for citizenship, it might say, in Christ, comma, heaven. That's where we live. But they also have a physical location. The ESV translates immediately after in Christ, at Colossae. Now, it does that for stylistic reasons. It's not a good translation. The Greek literally says, in Colossae. And that's important, because he's going to use the same phrase. In Christ, in Colossae. They were living in a specific place, though they were in Christ. They had almost dual citizenship. They belonged in heaven, but they belonged in Colossae. Here are these dear saints in the Lord who are faithful to the Lord in the midst of, of, of great pressure to turn back to their old ways and even to adopt bad theology. They are being faithful to the Lord. And God has physically located them in Colossae. Now, one of the reasons I love the book of Colossians to the church in Colossae is that it is a perfect book for small town churches to study because it was written to a small church in a small town. And there are a lot of similarities between Colossae and Bruton. First, it was a small town, but it was also on a strategic highway. So is Bruton on Highway 31. It was a small church just like ours. Isn't it nice to know that St. Paul took time to write a letter to a small town church? You know, he wrote some big ones too, church in Corinth, church in Rome. You know, Philippi was big, Ephesians was huge. But Corinth, uh, excuse me, Colossae was not. But just because we're in a small town and a small church makes us no less worthy of the attention of our Savior Jesus. And he has sent a letter to a small town church led by a man who's a first generation Christian. And it's a lot like Bruton. Colossae was located about 80 miles east of Ephesus, the regional capital of the Roman province of Asia, what is now Turkey or Asia Minor. And while there were Jews in the area, it was a Gentile and pagan land. There's no doubt, by the way, as we think about Bruton and Colossae, there's no doubt that we still have many, um, residue might not be the right part, right word, remnants of the Judeo-Christian values which, upon which our country was founded more so than in many larger towns. That's, that's real obvious, right? And it's the same thing. You know, Colossae was not probably as bad as Corinth. Bruton isn't as bad as Pensacola or Montgomery. And certainly not as bad as New York, right? But that doesn't mean that the same pressures that they were facing then are not also ones that we face now. There's still the pull. There's still the pull constantly at the doors of our hearts to walk away from the Lord, especially back into sexual sin, out of which the Colossian Christians and the Bruton Christians have come and have to face temptation every day. So Paul writes this letter because their pastor, Epaphras, came to see him in prison in Rome. Paul wrote this letter while he was in Rome, awaiting the verdict from the emperor if he would live or die. 
We're not entirely sure how long he was there, but this letter was probably written between 61 and 63 AD. And he wrote this letter because the church in, in Colossae was facing two threats. Now, Epaphras had brought great news to them. Hey, the church is doing great. These folks love each other. They love the Lord. They have great hope in Christ. But there are a couple problems we need to address. There were, there were two sources of threat, and the first was there was a danger of Christians in Colossae who had been converted out of wild living to return to wild living. To go back to those things that gratified the flesh before they were Christians. They lived in a pagan world that celebrated many of the things that we see on television and on our phones and in our magazines. They had those things then too. They were constantly fighting that temptation not to fall back into it. There was a second. And there was some sort of theological error that was endangering the church at Colossae. Commentators call it the Colossian heresy, though no one's really sure what it is. Uh, now, you'll read 10 different commentaries, and you'll have 10 different opinions about what it is. But it seems to be that they, everybody can agree on this. There was some sort of syncretism or, or mixing of true Christianity with Judaism and pagan religious thinking. And so they were in error of believing the wrong things, probably trying to make up for the number one threat of going back to old sexual sins. They said, okay, you want to fight that? Then what you need is this new teaching. And Paul's saying, no, who do you need? You need Jesus. In fact, this book, Colossians, has higher Christological language than Hebrews does, than John does, than Revelation does. These great works that, that point us to the, uh, to the sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ. Colossians is at the head of all of those things. It seems that Paul's number one concern is to cause the people to look to Jesus. Because as we look to Jesus, he is the answer to all these other things. You want to know how to battle the flesh? You look to Jesus. You want to know how to battle bad theology? What do you do? You look to Jesus. And so he tells the people, please look to Jesus. Well, verses 3 through 8 is called a thanksgiving report. And Paul writes, starts every one of his letters this way, except for one, the Galatians. And he has a real bone to pick with the Galatians. He's really excited. And, and normally in a, in a Greek letter, you would praise the person you're writing to. Oh, let me tell you about this. I just love you. you've lost weight. You know, I'm just so excited to see you. I value everything you tell me to do. You know, this, this is full of flattery. And Paul doesn't do that. He Christianizes it. And instead of giving thanks to them... He gives thanks to God for what God is doing in their lives. But I actually want to end, I actually want to start with the end and work backwards of 3 through 8. Because as we, as we do that, we see how the gospel got to Colossae and indeed how it got to us. So verse 7, speaking of the gospel, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. When we think about the advancement of the gospel, we have a great model in the Colossian church. Because here's the exciting part. Paul never met these people. He didn't start this church. He knew a few of them. He knew Epaphras. He knew Philemon, who was in that church as well. Uh, he knew Onesimus, who was in that church. He knew a few. But he didn't know all these other folks. This was a church that was a second-generation church. 
What I mean by that is Paul probably went through Colossae on the way to Ephesus in his third missionary journey, but he didn't stop there because there weren't any Christians there, and he'd been called to Ephesus. And he set up this missionary hub in Ephesus, and this man named Epaphras came from one of these three churches in the area, Laodicea, Hariopolis, or Colossae, went and heard Paul preach, probably in the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and was converted. And then he did what we are all called to do. He didn't keep it to himself. He didn't say, oh, this is great. I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to tell anybody else. Right? He took the gospel and he told others. And next thing we know, he has founded three churches in these three cities, which are all real close to each other. Uh, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hariopolis. You know, um, one of the most exciting things if you're in ministry is to see the people that you're ministering to begin to minister to others. Like, that's when you know it's catching. That's when you know that the church will survive and thrive, and that there's a future for the church beyond 2023. Uh, because uh, we all get older, and there has to be newer folks, and there has to be folks who don't know the Lord come back into the church. Uh, that, that's how it works. I, my job is to equip you for the saints, equip the saints for ministry. Uh, I'm seeking to equip the saints for ministry. That's, that is my number one goal and so that you can go do the ministry. I minister to you so you can minister to others. Uh, you know, our, our mission and vision statement, to know Christ and to make him known. How do we do that? By equipping you to equip others. And so how exciting it must have been for Paul to see Epaphras plant not just one church, but three churches in a region. Well, in verses 5b through 6, we learn how the church was established. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, is also does amongst you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Do you know how the kingdom of God advances? It's real simple. Only God can do it, but it's real simple. How people are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, how sins are washed away, lives, excuse me, lives are changed, chains are broken, and whole communities are transformed, is this of which you have heard before in the word of truth, comma, the gospel. See, Paul here calls the gospel the word of truth. What a great description. Because truth, the truth, is non-negotiable. It does not change. It does not go out of vogue. It is, not, it is absolute. It is not relative. It is not temporal. And it's not whatever you decide it to be. The gospel is the truth. Because it points us to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. See, we have a rock we can stand on in the midst of the shifting sands of our world, even of our emotions, and his name is Jesus. And he came to bring good news to all his people. It is the truth. He is the truth itself. What is the gospel? I love the, the, the very basic definition we get in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy. You can trust it. You can take it to the bank. In fact, you can depend your whole eternity on it. This saying is trustworthy and, and deserving of full acceptance. You need to accept this. What is it? That Christ Jesus, the Messiah, God himself, came into the world to save sinners. Everybody in this room is a sinner. Everybody you know is a sinner. Everybody you ever heard of is a sinner. And then Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost. It's that, it's that last part that's so key. You first must realize that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, in order that you might see that the gospel is worthy of full acceptance and trustworthy, that Christ came into this world to save you. And that's what went forth in Colossae and Hariopolis and Laodicea, as, as Epaphras was just faithful to tell people about the good news, and God calls the fruit to be born amongst them. 
the gospel was believed by Epaphras, and he passed it on. Did you know that seeds go bad? I bet you did, because you live in Bruton. I didn't know that until I came to Bruton. That you can't, you know, you don't want to plant seed that's old. You can put it in the freezer and it might last two or three seasons. But it's interesting because old seed and new seed, they probably look the same, especially if they've been in the freezer for a while. But one's dead and one's alive. And if you plant the one that's alive, it's going to bear fruit because it's fresh seed. There's a fresh seed. There's a fresh seed of the gospel. Is there a fresher one? Is there a better word that there's good news that we can go from being condemned to not condemned? That Christ has done what the law, though it has been weakened by flesh, could not do. He did it for us. He died in our place and he was raised in our place. What great news is that he did this for you, for vile, wretched sinners like you and me. That those things done long ago, they really can be forgotten. Those things that bring you shame in the night, Jesus has dealt with those. The baggage and history that you bring to the table, Jesus overwrites those. He throws it out. I know. I paid for that. That the moral debt that we owe God has been paid. That there is a way for hell-bound sinners like you and me to get off that train and to get on the highway express heading to heaven. Why? Because the good news is that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And that's how the church in Colossae was founded. And that's how the church in Bruton was founded. The gospel came from Epaphras to Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, and it bore fruit. God caused the preaching of the word of truth to bear great fruit, and a whole region of churches was founded. But it's interesting. You know, the, 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 the gospel bears fruit. And it bears fruit as it goes forth in the breadth of the kingdom, as more and more rebels are made worshipers and brought into the kingdom of God. But it also bears fruit in our lives. It's not just conversion. It is continued growth as we plumb the depths of God's love, as we plumb the depths of his word, as we are reminded of the good news of the gospel every day. Bo's class this morning studied my favorite verse, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. What a great summary of what's available to those who trust in Christ. What that means is you are condemned unless you do accept him. And there's that phrase, in Christ, again, that spiritual location. Are you in Christ and in Bruton, or are you just in Bruton? That's a good question. You're in Bruton, but are you in Christ? Well, <clears throat> there are evidences here of true conversion. So we have these fantastic palm trees in our, uh, in our sanctuary. I love these things. They're gorgeous. I don't know any other sanctuary that's uh, fashioned after the Alamo on the outside, right? <laughs> that has this amazing southern pine on the inside and palm trees, right? I love it. I, it's just, I love this sanctuary. It's gorgeous. Now, if you're visiting us on Facebook, welcome. We love you, especially if you're in Ohio, Aunt Janet. Okay, but here's the thing. It may look like that they're real, but I have been here nine years, and I've never seen anybody water those things. In fact, it might be bad if we did. Now, see, Paul, he looks, he hears, this, um, he hears this report of what's going on in, in Colossae. And there are challenges, as is there is in every church. You find the perfect church, run, because everybody's lying. Right? 
Uh, he hears of great things, though. And there are two really important things he hears about. He says, they have faith in Christ and they have love for each other. And he says, because of that, I know you're not fake palm trees. I know you're not fake Christians. Because that comes from Jesus. There's a third one there. So this is a triad you see a lot in Paul's writings. Faith, hope, and love. Although it's a mixed up ver- uh, order here. And commentators say that this is, um, this is apostolic shorthand for true Christians. That if there's faith in Christ, love for the saints, and hope, then that person, that there's evidence of true conversion. And Paul's ecstatic. He's ecstatic first that, that their faith is in Christ. So they are located in Christ, and that's because they have faith in Christ. Now here's the thing, faith won't get you anywhere. Faith won't get you anywhere. The object of your faith is the one who saves you. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. We use, we use the shorthand of we're saved by faith. And yes, Scripture says that. But Scripture uses that as shorthand. You're saved by faith in somebody. You're saved by Christ. And we're connected to Him by the faith that God gives us to trust in Christ. And they are trusting in Christ. Are you trusting in Christ? We might say it two ways. One, are you trusting in Christ for salvation, period? You know, that's entry into the kingdom of God. Are you, have you despaired of yourself, seeing yourself as a sinner, seeing this need to, to accept the salvation that is offered freely to you in Christ? You cannot earn it. He gives it to you freely. But believers, is your faith growing? Is, it, is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? As you plumb the depths of Scripture and you fellowship with the Lord in prayer, as you come to the sacraments as God's people. The second thing that that Paul commends them for is their love for the saints. I was reminded Friday of the breadth of um, the communion of saints, the breadth of the church. I went with Thomas to his uh, field trip to Montgomery to see the capital, and we also went to Old Alabama Town. Have you ever been to Old Alabama Town? It's, It's really fun. And they have this chapel there, um, gorgeous little chapel. They still use it, by the way. It had air conditioning, even though it was built in the 1880s. Uh, I love that, before its time. And we walk in, and we start wondering what's going on. It's clearly a room that's used. And I read the story, and I use this word because that's what it was called back then, the First Colored Presbyterian Church of Montgomery. Um, I've never heard of a denomination called the Colored Presbyterians. Uh, certainly, if they were still around, it'd be, the name would be changed now because we don't use that anymore. But, but what great news. I mean, here are our Presbyterian brothers and sisters from the late 1800s who met in this church. Now, how it got there is complicated and all those sorts of things. But I'm looking forward to the day when we're all around the throne of God. Wouldn't it be great if First Pres was known, and I think it actually is known for this. Um, I don't want to build you up so you'll stop doing it. But it is known for the love that we have for each other. What a great mark of God's work in our lives is if we love not just those who look, smell, and dress like we do, but those who are different and who need the gospel. Um, Paul sees the church doing this, and he commends them for it. Now, what's unique about this triad in Colossians is that uh, the first two, faith and love, are because of hope. It's the only place that Paul does this. These things are operative because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. What does that mean? Well, I think two things. One, it is, it is referring to the inheritance that we have as Christians. That our true hope is in heaven. That this world, though we often run after it, 
full head-on sprinting because we think it's going to satisfy us. It won't. But as believers, our true hope, our true identity is already in heaven because we are in Christ. Our inheritance is in heaven. That inheritance, by the way, in, when Paul speaks of it, is our full salvation in heaven for all of eternity, all the blessings that we have in Christ. We have them partially now. We will have them in fullness to come. But I think the hope that is laid up for, for us in heaven is ultimately talking about a person. and His name is Jesus. Because He is our only hope in this life and the next. Faith, hope, and love. Are these things operative in your life? Is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in your heart? I pray that it does. I pray there's revival and renewal brought to our hearts as God's people. God begins to bring people into our church and that we would love them well as we point them to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus in heaven. Well, let me, uh, let me finish with this. Uh, simply saying, uh, the Gale Fountain had hope in Christ. What, a, what an amazing woman. She trusted deeply in Jesus, and her love was amazing. Everybody I talked to this week said, oh, we know Gail. She's the nicest person I ever met. And let me tell you what she did for me. And her hope was, she loved her family, but her hope wasn't in her family. She had a fantastic home. Her hope wasn't in her home. Her hope was in Christ. And now she has seen the object of her hope. And she has inherited her full inheritance as she has seen her Savior. Do you have that kind of hope? It can be yours right now. It belongs to believers. It belongs to those who are in the kingdom of God. And how you become a member of the kingdom of God, you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. As simple as that. He offers it freely. He offers eternal life to all those who would turn to him, especially in small towns like Colossae and Bruton. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Oh, Father, pray that, we pray that you would cause our, the hearts, our hearts and our minds would be focused on things that are above and not the things of this world, and that you would grow us by the gospel, the, the word of truth, by your spirit, in faith, hope, and love. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.